You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Katrina Gulliver. Uh, Katrina, could you introduce yourself? Hi, Arya. I'm Katrina Gulliver, a historian, writer, and random Twitter person who you may have seen if you're on Twitter a lot, like I am. <laughs> and like I am as well. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, so that's funny because there was one Twitter related question that I had for you, but we'll hold it to the end and we'll, that'll be okay. like a teaser. Um, but so the, we're going to be talking about a couple, uh, things that you've, uh, written about or spoken about, uh, in the near past. And, mm -hmm. uh, these are, uh, things that are about the past. Um, so, okay. the, so the first thing we're going to be talking about is a piece that you wrote that ran, uh, in the Washington Post. Uh, the headline was, Americans put up statues during the Gilded Age. Today we're tearing them down. Um, and we'll include the link to that below. And uh, so this was uh, an interesting piece about, yeah, kind of like, why are there all these statues all over America? H how did they get there? When were they put there? And I learned some interesting stuff from it. So um, can you tell us uh, more about the piece? Well, I was talking about how technology had changed to really make putting up statues a lot more affordable. You know, just at this period when there was this uh, sense of democratization of public space and people wanted to put money into often beautifying urban areas and making statues historically. I mean, casting in bronze has been going back for thousands of years. Very labor intensive, very, very, very expensive. And the kind of thing that was really limited to royals, the church, things like that. And, you know, technology changed with the Industrial Revolution. Techniques changed to make it a lot more affordable. And so you could have a statue for a lot less money. And also you had um, the popularity of the public subscription to pay for a lot of these things. People tend to forget a lot of these things. It wasn't one person decided to put up a statue. It was a group said, let's put up a statue. And then they held a public subscription for it. I mean, even the Statue of Liberty was done this way. Uh, money was raised for her in France. Uh, French people, there was even a lottery. There were public art exhibits. There were theater productions, all to raise money to build the statue. Meanwhile, in the U.S., there was a public subscription to pay for the plinth that she was going to stand on because the U.S. government said, well, okay, you can put it there, but we're not paying for it. And so, you know, a lot of people chipped in for these things. And I think people forget that these were often very large collective efforts, you know, people putting in very small amounts of money. And I think that's really interesting when we look back on who got statues and, and where they came from, because, you know, it does reflect often the will of a larger group of people than just sort of one individual thinking, oh, I want to put up a statue. It was this, you know, community movement often towards these celebrating particular people or events. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you see the um, the names of those people, like in, in, on like a plaque at the bottom of a statue, uh, mm -hmm. the, like the people who, who donated some amount of money to it. Um and okay, so, let's, so you mentioned the the technological aspect. So I didn't know anything about this. So it's called electro something that that uh, this new technique that was invented like in the eighteen fifties. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a, a way to um, essentially produce um, a replica of a cast of something much more easily. I'm I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to explain this very very well. But think of it as like 3D modeling, kind of like the 19th century version of the fact that you can now print out a 3D model of a gun or something. But it was obviously pre-digital technology and, you know, they, they could create a replica of a cast much more easily than what had been done before. And that saved a lot of money. 
mm-hmm. and sped up the production. And the other thing to think about is how globalized this was. A lot of these statues coming to the U.S., being put up in the U.S., were in fact made in Europe. They were cast. They were sculpted by artists in Europe. They were often cast in bronze foundries in Europe, and you know brought by steamship to the U.S. I mean, it was very much a global market for these sort of sculptures. And that's one of the things I mentioned that you had these casting factories exporting statues to all corners of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that one was in White Plains, New York, that mm-hmm. made, became one of the major um, American ones. Yeah, and. Uh, so, yeah, so an interesting fact uh, from the piece that I didn't know before was that I think you say that between like roughly half of the um, statues like currently, you know, in public places in America were made between 1880 and 1930. Um, yeah. And so I guess it was like the golden age of American statuary or something. Um, and so there's there's the technological reasons for it to become cheap easier and thus cheaper to make a statue. Um, and then, so, but, but there are also like these cultural changes and cultural forces that made people uh, want to put up a statue in the first place. So could you talk a little bit about those? Well, I, there were a couple of factors. One was the, the city beautiful movement, which was a sort of 1880s onwards movement towards, um, as the name suggests, people wanting open spaces to be more appealing. You saw a lot of, moves towards zoning and other structures, um, you know, legislative effects of that, but also local community groups focusing on things like planting gardens, laying out parks, having urban and town spaces be more attractive in what was a particularly planned way. And it tended to be on these neoclassical principles. They wanted wide boulevards. They wanted, you know, attractive vistas and that created a lot of spaces where it was suitable to put a plinth and, you know, statues were seen as obviously picturesque, appropriate kind of street decorations. And the other thing is this is a time when, um, as Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, used to call it the invention of tradition in the late 19th century, this invention of the past, even things like celebrating Thanksgiving. This is not something that people were doing continuously from the 17th century onwards. I mean, it was kind of given a real boost in the late 19th century as a national concept. And we see that with other forms of tradition that were kind of created around this period. And so this is when you had many more historic sites being designated, you had historical figures, therefore, being focused on and becoming, you know, the town wanted to celebrate, you know, local hero who did something in the past. And so they would put up a statue. And you see a lot of historical associations being dating to about this period where towns suddenly wanted to uh, preserve the past of the town and also kind of create the past of the town to project an image of, you know, a proud history of the people who lived there. And so that's where a lot of these statues came from. You know, do we, who do we want to celebrate who we think represents our community, mm-hmm. you know, however that community might be defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so in America, was it that was the civil war, um, both in impetus for like, we need a memorial to the, men who fought or who, who died, but also like, so like so many, so many people did die and there was such carnage that like that made people want to focus more on, on the past and like, you know, what, what were they fighting for? That, that kind of thing. Well, I think any war brings impetus for a lot of memorials, but I think there's a kind of a distinction you might want to make between the memorial to the fallen soldiers that oftentimes went up relatively soon after the war and the ones that people think of as the more 
aggressively white supremacist celebrations of the lost cause that often went up many decades later. We're talking 1910s, 1920s, around the period that there was this uh, resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And, you know, these things were less about memorializing particular people who died in the war and more about pushing a particular image of a, you know, white nationalist vision. And, and some of them even explicitly said things on the base about, you know, white men should lead, the, the South will rise again, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, that I think is probably detached from memorials that went up immediately after the war that was, you know, to the dead of whatever regiment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I remember the, uh, there was, okay, so there was this initial period, I guess it was it at, at, right after the uh, Charlottesville um violence in 2017 of pulling down mm-hmm. statues and then there was a video of a group of people pulling down a confederate statue that was just like an anonymous soldier and when it mm-hmm. hit the ground it like crumpled like it had been made uh, it was like an aluminum can or something like it, mm-hmm. it it just like you know fell apart very quickly and then people who knew were like well these were kind of like mass produced in a very cheap way and were like distributed by you know daughters of the confederate whatever veterans and 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 put up and then given, yeah, some sort of, like, local local meaning, but, like, they were, you know, I don't know, like, kind of, like, action figures or something, <laughs> just, like, mm-hmm. produced in a, in, a, in a mass way. So that, that's, um, so that's interesting. I mean, yeah, because I, I think what's, we get from pieces when you see a statue, especially one that's, like, you know, like, green with rust or oxidation or whatever that is, it seems like, well, this has been here for hundreds of years, and this is, like, kind of eternal, and... You know, it's, it's, it was made to last forever, but also, but like, okay, well, it was made by people and then maybe some of them were made in a more careful way. And some of them were kind of made as, you know, we're just churning these things out or, or to get it done as quickly and cheaply as possible. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that was a thought kind of occasioned by, by your piece. Um, but okay, so but I want to. Okay, so, sorry, dude, were you gonna <laughs> say something? No, I, I was just interested in what you said because the other element of the mass production of these sort of things was not statues; it was um, tombstones and funeral statuary. Because mm-hmm. the Victorian period, people were really into mourning in a way that they hadn't been previously, and that's when you'll get these really elaborate weeping angels and stuff like that in graveyards. And oftentimes they were mass produced. You know, if you were expensive and fancy, you could afford to have someone, you know, cast, you know, carve something in marble for you. If you were not, you would buy something that might have been cast in cement or, you know, something like that. So they were kind of the knockoff mass produced versions of these things. And I think that's also part of the same discourse of this period, the putting up of monuments, even to your own family members, if you could afford to. Right. That's interesting. And Yeah. And if you walk through. Victorian or old cemeteries, you see these ones that are just uh, like a common one I've noticed is it's like a, um, it looks like a, a tree branch or something that's been shattered, mm-hmm. like the, you know, the life cut off too early. Yeah. So that's something that I, I guess is not really that trope faded out <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's def- there definitely was a lot more, uh, I don't know, creativity <laughs> about uh, what, what will go into a cemetery. Uh, back then when it seems like now, I mean, you know, like this whole history of like the cemeteries were like the public spaces, the first public spaces and people would like picnic in them. And because it was open space far from the city and stuff like that, so people would spend more time and maybe they'd visit their deceased relatives and have a picnic also or something like that. So people would have more of a different relationship to it than than we do now. Um, Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the pulling down of the statue. 
Um, mm-hmm. You don't talk about this explicitly in your piece. It's more about the putting up. But uh, so we're in an age where um, uh, an iconoclastic age, people are pulling down statues, and it made me think like. You know why? Why is it? Why does this become a focus? Uh, why do people care so much on both sides about the statue? Um, what you know? Why are there um, uh, soldiers or or police officers who look like soldiers surrounding certain <laughs> monuments and and guarding them like they are guarding you know uh, uh, Fort Knox or something like that? Um, why why do we care about this so much? So do you have any any initial thoughts on why? So, so why both people still really care about statues and why now it's become like one of the focal points of like literal violence, uh, these statues? Well, I think, as you say, it's been coming for a few years. And, you know, in Britain, there was the roads must fall thing in Oxford, which was to do with um, the influence of Cecil Rhodes and his legacy in Oxford, but particularly also a statue of him. And, you know, oftentimes it is around a particular historical individual who has a legacy that, you know, does still resonate. And I think in many cases, you know, people do find offensive. But I think some of the other the other statues you see coming down seem to be just a little bit more random. And I think some of the people pulling them down maybe don't know who the person was. There was some cases that I saw reporting, you know, statues of abolitionists. You know, it's like, well, if, if your argument is you're doing this for Black Lives Matter, I'm not sure that that's really your ideal target. I mean, taking down, obviously, the statues that were to the Confederacy that were explicitly white supremacist, you can say, well, yeah, obviously, I mean, these things don't really deserve a, a place in our public sphere anymore. But I think, as as you say, I think these things often get a bit out of hand. And, you know, we've had statues coming down that I think possibly there's less of a strong argument for taking them down. I don't know. Um I think it raises a lot of questions, too, though, about what should be in these public spaces. Are they things that, you know, the general public should get a vote on? Are they something that, you know, there should be some sort of public consensus over what should be in these spaces? I, I don't know that there's necessarily so much of a, an interest in replacing these statues with something else, although it did happen in Bristol where the Ed, Edward Colston statue got taken down, got thrown into the harbour. Uh, he was a slave trader. And is he, so I've never heard of this person before. Is this a, a prominent figure in the UK or? Uh, I would say he's prominent in Bristol in terms of the fact that he, a lot of things are named after him in okay. the town and he, in his lifetime, gave a lot of money to things. And so his name's on a lot of stuff. Um, but the debate around his statue really sort of came to the fore. I want to say in the last five years, um, people had been arguing about the fact that it shouldn't be there, that he represents a particularly uh, nasty legacy and that we shouldn't be regarding him as, you know, a proud father of the city, as it were. So anyway, his statue was ripped down and thrown in the harbour. You could say fair enough. And then it was replaced uh, a little while ago. Someone had actually made a statue of one of the women who had been involved in tearing the statue down and put it up in his place, which I thought was actually quite clever. I mean, they'd worked very quickly, whoever the artist was, I can't remember, and they built this statue of this huh. uh, woman protester. Uh-huh. And now that's been taken down too. So. <laughs> was that taken down by a crowd or by the city? I think it. I think it was probably taken down by the authorities, but I'm not 100%. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean... This is like it, it's a deep subject that is strange to me in some ways. Like there's it, there, there's things that almost go, that I think go like beyond logic 
uh, when when people were talking about this stuff. Um, so okay, so so taking down, you know, the Confederate statues that's been a flashpoint for a long time in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbus statues are yeah. another one, um, and as you know, a lot of these statues were put up by like Italian American associations. Mm-hmm. And uh, seen as you know, uh, memorializing the uh, contribution of Italian Ameri- Italians or Italian Americans to uh, the American story, and uh, you know, and now people have a somewhat different view of Columbus than they did hundred years ago. But a lot of Italians, uh, there's still a um, connection there. They still see it. You know, this is the whole like this is connected to the Columbus Day thing, which some people want to rebrand as Indigenous Peoples Day or, or something like that, um, and. Yeah, so so it's complicated, and then I just want to. There's a um, so I live in uh, Jersey City now, and when this when the statue toppling started, someone posted on Jersey City Reddit saying, um, you know, uh, what about you know we really the the Columbus statue in Jersey City should be taken down, and um, I hadn't actually seen it before, and it's a it's kind of like um, a statue that must have been put up by. Uh, a nearby Catholic church, and it's kind of like Columbus, the crusading Christian. Uh, he's holding he's holding a cross, a giant cross, you know, up like this. Um, right. So it's not the traditional image of of Columbus. And so I guess there's a couple, you know, reasons people could get pissed off that one. And then uh, so, the, but the person who you know did, uh, laid out this post was uh, making you know making the case against Columbus, and they were like, oh, why don't we put someone else, a statue of someone else up who had a connection to uh, the area? How about Peter Stuyvesant? Um, okay. <laughs> and, and there were like 50 people in the comments who were like, don't you know what Peter Stuyvesant did? <laughs> so it was, it was almost, a, yeah. So the, uh, there was just something funny there, but like, um, so Peter Stuyvesant was, I, I don't know his entire history. He was like the first governor or first or second governor of, um, you know, the new ne- Netherlands <laughs> and new Amsterdam and, um, and, and so the Jersey city across the, the Hudson river from, um, Manhattan had, you know, had uh, Dutch settlements here as well. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like, on the one hand, you know, yeah, like, if we're looking for someone from, like, the 17th century to, to put, devote a statue to, well, they probably had some beliefs that we would not agree with today about a number of things, because that was four or five hundred years ago. Um, so, so that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, people were jokingly like, why don't we just put a statue of, like, a cat, or, you know, or, like, a flower or something. So, so, I mean... There's there's also this question of like what are you know modern statues and usually they're they they don't look like you know the statues from 1890 they're probably more much more abstract or they're not even they're entirely abstract or I'm thinking of the one of the bust of JFK which you know mm-hmm. that famous one which looks like it was done with someone's thumbs or something or yeah, the Gertrude Stein right. statue in um in uh, uh, uh the uh, <laughs> it's not I can't remember the name of the park, but there's a there's a Gertrude Stein statue not in Central Park but in um, another park in New York City uh, on 42nd Street. So, so yeah, so that's somewhat different also, and it's not like yeah, there just seems to be a level of abstraction from who the actual person was to this being more of, of an artistic thing as opposed to just a person. Okay, so I've been talking for a while. Do you have any reaction to, to any of that? I do think it's hilarious that someone said, let's replace the evil colonialist Columbus with a statue of Peter Stuyvesant. <laughs> I mean, the Columbus has been such an issue for a while. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, um, in 92, there was the, because it was the 500th anniversary in 1992, there was a lot of contention there about Columbus Day, about how it was celebrated. And I think it was around then you started getting some places renaming it Indigenous Peoples Day. 
And that was also the year that those two awful Columbus movies came out that you might remember. Um, mm. There was one with uh, Gerard Depardieu that was the more serious one. Okay. And there was another one with Tom Selleck that was really trashy. Boy, I think I was maybe a little too young to, to see either of those, and they've, and, they've passed, yeah. passed by. Um, you know, and yeah, he is one of these figures that is, you know, really contentious. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone is really coming out nowadays and saying he was a great guy and we should celebrate him. I mean, the legacy of suffering on indigenous peoples that his voyages led to is hardly something we can be proud of or want to mark. But as you say, I, I don't know who we would find from the 17th century that you would want to celebrate. I mean, your answer should be perhaps that, you know, maybe we shouldn't put a white guy up there. Maybe we should look to someone else. Yeah. I or, mean, you, you could, you could think it could be just a, um, more or less, uh, you know, regular person or something from that time. Um, you know, it could be, uh, yeah. I, I mean, picking someone who isn't a white male would be a little bit of a, of a change. I mean, so, you know, you note in the piece that there, is this right? Am I understanding this right? There aren't, there currently aren't, there is not a statue of a woman in Central Park? Not a statue of an actual woman who isn't just a classical or figurative thing. I mean, it's, it's been a thing people talk about in the last few years. Find a statue of a woman in your city who isn't a classical figure or a queen. And chances are there will not be one. I mean, uh, if you're in Britain, there's a good chance you'll find a statue of Queen Victoria somewhere. But other actual human women don't tend to get much of a, a look in. That's why they recently put up the Millicent Fawcett statue in London. So, you know, a woman in Parliament Square, which is, you know, a step forward. But, uh, you know, quite recently that, we, that we've had that for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so when they when they do these modern statues of like, let's do someone who isn't uh, a white man. Is it done in the retro style and then it's kind of like almost a pastiche or is it done in more like a modern style? Uh, I think it varies. varies a lot. Um, I'm, I'm not really an expert on contemporary statuary. Uh, the Millicent Fawcett one is, you would say, in a fairly traditional style of, of uh, sculpture. It represents essentially the period that she was from, which is the early 20th century. Um, <clears throat> and she was, the, she was a suffrage uh, campaigner? She was a, she was a suffragist, yeah. The other, the other actual woman I was going to say that you've got a big statue of in London is uh, Boadicea, or Boudicca. Right. <laughs> so I guess she was a real person. But was she a real person? I thought it, it, she's a, like semi-mythical, but maybe she was real, like a Celtic I think, queen. I think she was real. Okay. Um, what, what we know about her and her interactions with the Romans are probably a little embroidered. Okay. Um, okay, so let's talk about tearing down the statues. Um, so I, I was thinking about um, uh, the first, the, uh, there was a, there's a famous instance in American history of tearing, uh, during the revolution, tearing down the statue of King George III that was in lower Manhattan and, you know, sm- smelting it or whatever and turning it into bullets. That's at least how they teach it to you, mm-hmm. like in elementary school. I don't know if it really happened like that. Um, but that that's maybe the most famous um, tearing down of a statue in most of U.S. history. And then there's the tearing down of statues in the popular conception of, like, uh, the statues of Lenin coming down after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the statue of Saddam being torn down um, during their first, you know, like, week three of the Iraq War, and it had to be helped by um, the, uh, you know, American tanks and stuff had to help 
pull it down, um, which was like looking back, uh, you know, <laughs> a prescient metaphor about, you know, what it would take in that country. Um, and, and then, and then, it, so those are, those are tyrants, who, you know, and, and the government has changed and, and tyranny has fallen. Uh, at least people think tyranny has fallen. And so they run out to start tearing down uh, the hated statue of the, of the tyrant. So, so it, this is different than what's happening now, because as you said, um, you know, they're going after Columbus and, uh, you know, um, Jeb Stewart or something, but they're also going after some random person who who's like an abolitionist whose statue was near the Wisconsin, Wisconsin state house or, or something along those lines. Uh, maybe it was in Minnesota, but yeah. So there's, there's almost like a statue tear down fever. Like, uh, like this is like a meme that, that's spreading and people like want to get in, get in on the action. And, I mean, I'm sure it's, it must be really exciting if you're like literally pulling on a rope with like a dozen or so of your comrades and then, and then the thing topples and everyone claps. That has to be super fun. Um, but, but that's, but that, that's different than the, the government saying we are taking this down and like sending mm-hmm. some construction equipment to do it or yeah. they, they do it in the middle of the night without announcing it um, because mm-hmm. they want to protect the statue. So they, those are, these are possible different ways the statue can get off its pedestal. Um, wh- what do you think of why people are now running out to, you know, tear down <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, but also the, the whole, like, it seems, it does seem better to me for the government to be doing it than for a like mob quote unquote of people to be, to be doing it. Uh, because, you know, just a bunch of people can't decide to uh, change, uh, change the landscape uh, on their own. That seems somewhat wrong to me. It should be done through democratic processes. Uh, so yeah. What do you think of that? Well, I think, as you say, that there's different situations. I think most of us were kind of, I don't know, pleased to see, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that, you know, people were able to rip down these statues of Lenin across Eastern Europe, that this was their expression of finally getting free from, you know, the communist dictatorship. And, you know, I don't think anyone was sad when we saw statue indeed of Saddam Hussein coming down when these sort of tyrants get ripped down. I mean, that is symbolic. And I think it's important for the people involved in pulling it down. I mean, you saw people hitting the statue of Saddam Hussein with their shoe. I mean, this was a real expression of their personal anger towards this government that had mistreated them. And so I think in a sense, they're entitled to that. Uh, I mean, as opposed to the government taking them down elsewhere, I think there was this week, I would probably have to check, in Chicago, two two statues of Columbus did come down, I think were taken down by the government, um, by the city officials, I think preemptively. And I don't think that was necessary to preserve them, but I think so that they didn't become a focus. I mean, I don't think they're probably going to be put back up, but... um, Right, well, I mean, one thing, at least in, in the earlier iteration of the, um, you know, circa 2017, the idea, the kind of like the good liberal opinion was like, okay, take them down, but put them in a museum and we'll explain who mm-hmm. these people, these people were and why what they did was bad. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's the Indiana Jones, <laughs> this belongs in a museum. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it should be, you know, where you could have all sorts of historical relics and you're, you're not uh, giving like a value statement or approval to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, but now it, but now that seems, I don't know, I haven't heard that in this round that the statue of Jeb Stewart should be put in a museum. Um, I mean, first of all, how many statues of Jeb Stewart are there out there? Like, you know, they, they probably made a lot of them, about 50, I don't know. So you could have just a museum of Jeb Stewart statues. Um, and then also who, who the hell cares about Jeb Stewart 
you know, uh, 150 plus years after the Civil War and wants to go look at his statue in a museum. And so it's it's more, it most just seems like, uh, let's destroy this shit and throw it in the river. And that, that, see, does that only happen in Bristol or did that happen? In, it seemed like people were inspired to, they wanted to do it other places, but it's not always as easy to, the statue needs to be fairly I, close to the river. I, well, relatively close to the river, but I think also he had, or rather Constant's statue, had been such a focus of people's resentment for such a long time that, you know, he attracted more, you know, specific anger, I think, than I think most other statues. And that particularly was why the, there was the big momentum to get him down and throwing him in the river was quite symbolic because of Bristol having been a slave port, or rather throwing him in the harbor, sorry. And, <clears throat> you know, I think there was a great emotional buildup towards that. And that I think there hasn't been necessarily towards other statues that um, weren't recognized as such problematic figures in some places. I mean, what you say about what we do with them when they've come down, I mean, some of them have been more or less destroyed. Some of them haven't. There is a place that I've heard about in uh, Lithuania, which is a, uh, they call it like Stalin world. And it's a statue park of all these ripped down uh, Soviet era statues that they've just put up, you know, put into this park. So I, I, I think you can go and visit and just go and look at Soviet statues if that's your thing, mm-hmm. which I think is quite funny. But this notion of just put them in a museum, I think kind of expresses, I want to say, one of the problems with how the general public think of museums as just like a warehouse of old stuff. I don't think most museums actually want these things. And the idea that because the people saying, I'll put it in a museum, they are never going to go and look at it in that museum. The museum is going to be stuck with a whole bunch of statues that nobody actually wants to see. Nobody's going to be paying an entrance fee to visit. I mean, what are they supposed to do with yeah, them? The, the, the museum. The, who wants to go to? Who wants to run the museum of Confederate statuary? That's all these well, exactly. all these guys on horses that were displaced from you know public squares in towns and cities across the South. Um, I guess there's there be some audience for that, but not not a huge one. Um, yeah, so then, but what do you, I mean, if, if the government removes Robert E. Lee's statue or something, what do you think should happen to it? I don't know. I mean, I think, depending on what it is, I mean, it's one of these things, you know, separate the art from the artist. If it was actually something, hypothetically, that was um, sculpted by Rodin or someone of significance as an artist in their own right, then it might be of more interest than just a sculpture that was made by some random person and, and of little artistic or historical merit. I, I really read a fantastic suggestion on Twitter, which was dump them all in the ocean so they become an artificial reef and then people <laughs> could go diving and swim around them. Oh, and I think that's just fantastic. Well, like they do with subway cars. That's actually yeah. beautiful if you think if you, if you think about it. That it, Well, I mean, we're, we don't know. We're killing the, the, reefs, the, the reefs because of the uh, you know acid and the ocean water mm-hmm. or whatever. But if you can imagine... You know, in 100 years, they're all covered in coral and, and so forth. And people are just swimming around them and they're like, who are these, you know, who is this man? Who is this Jeb Stewart person? We don't know who he is. We don't, we don't care. Um, <laughs> so that that is a very poetic um, end to them. Um, I wanted to mention briefly a statue controversy type thing that, it is, uh, that happened over the past month. So I used to live in Rochester, New York, uh, the two famous historical... Uh, citizens from Rochester, New York are Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. Um, and there's lots of stuff named after them around uh, the, the main bridge in Rochester is the Freddie Sue, people call it locally, Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony Bridge. Um, so Rochester is also 
so Douglas lived for like 30 years or something in Rochester. Um, but there's not much that's still there from his time. There's a, there's a Susan Anthony house where she lived, but, um, uh, Douglas is any, I think all the places Douglas lived have been torn down and some of them is just like a parking lot. So it's kind of sad. Um, but there is a statue of Douglas that was, as far as I understand, the first, um, statue of an African-American, um, erected in the United States. Um, and it would have been like, you know, fairly soon after his death, maybe in like 1880 or something. So within, within this era and it's in sort of the main park, Highland, Highland park, um, in Rochester that, uh, is somewhat equivalent to Central Park. And so that, that, that was, that I always thought that was a kind of cool thing. And then, um, so there was a news story about three weeks ago that a Frederick Douglass statue was defaced and like thrown, uh, into a gorge. Um, mm. and I don't know if you caught this one, but it, it caught my eye and I, and I was like, Oh no, did they like, how, like, did they take the statue? Like, this is a historical statue. Uh, like a true, this is not just, Jeb Stewart number 27. Like, this is a true historical statue um, of an actual admirable American. And, like, did they destroy it? So I was I was upset at first. And so, you know, I'm saying I don't even understand people, why people care about these statues so much, but I, I cared about this one. Uh, but mm-hmm. then it turned out they're like, no, this is another statue that was a different part of the city. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know there was, there was a statue, another statue of Douglas there on the other side of the river. And, and then um, it seemed like they don't know you know, some people took it off and threw it like down a gorge, or, like into a river. And so it was destroyed. But then I was just look, trying to f- close the loop on this. And so what actually, there's a, what actually happened was that um, a couple years ago, there was a like civic art project um, where a sculptor made 12 or, or something like that um, copies of the original Douglas statue and then changed them in some ways where like maybe uh like the hand was like missing or something, or like there was like an empty space, you know, where his chest would be or something. So use like modern techniques such that each one looked a little different and didn't really look like the real one. And they, and they put them all around the city in some, some in places that were uh, relevant to Douglas's life and some just in like parks and stuff. And so it was one of these that was, um, you know, lifted up and thrown into the gorge. So it was a modern, a modern, like postmodern replica of an actual historical statue. Um, and so, but just a couple, like, just like a couple days ago, uh, they replaced it. They had like kept what they had like put out 12, but made 13. There was like one still in the warehouse. So they replaced the one that was thrown in, um, and put it in a spot that actually does have some historical interest because it's, it was a, um, spot where escaped slaves would, um, go to and go up the Genesee river and into Lake Ontario and head to Canada. So, um, but it, but it also like, so it was more like an, a piece of art and a replica than an actual thing. But the way it was <laughs> reported originally, uh, it was like, like they're going after Frederick Douglass now. Like who, no one, no statue is safe. They're destroying Frederick Douglass, these crazy lefties. And then if you thought about it for a second, you'd be like, well, it's possible that some lefties went after Frederick Douglass, but probably more likely that like some righties <laughs> tried try to take down Frederick Douglass. I guess they, they don't know who actually did it, but, um, but yeah, so it's strange. It's a strange overall. And the, anyway, if, if you want to go to Rochester, the, the statue has been replaced there, thankfully. Um, and I don't know if they're, I thought there was just a temporary exhibit or something, but I guess they're, maybe they're going to leave it up forever. But, you know, they're made out of plexiglass or something. So it's fairly easy right. to like lift it up and throw it in the river, if, just a couple people, if they wanted to, as opposed to, you know, needing a bunch of people. Um, 
so yeah, I don't even know what, what to think about that, that entire episode, but but people still care about statues, uh, even if they're kind of like weird fake ones. Yeah, I mean, I I find it really interesting that I, I suspect kind of cynically that some people who want to take down statues and also some people who are suddenly desperately, oh, let's protect this. This is part of our heritage. I think if you'd asked these people a year ago, none of them had heard of this statue or this person that the statue represents. You know, it's they, they've got this sudden passion about it. Um, you know, let, let's save our heritage. I bet you most of those people couldn't name the person in the statue or anything they were famous for or <laughs> why they want to keep it. You know, it's, it's this... So I think a lot is being projected onto these statues that represents other, obviously, you know, cultural, political tensions. Yeah. And I mean, if you, the, the average statue, if you walk by it and, and it doesn't have like the person's name on it, um, unless, unless it's like Abraham Lincoln or something, there's only, you know, like, you're like, who is this person? Why is this here? Or probably you don't even think about it. You just ignore it and keep on walking to wherever you go. Um, so... Yeah, it's strange. I, I, I just want to realize I should plug another statue that's in Jersey City, which is a statue that I think is called Lincoln the Mystic. That was uh, it's it's an interesting statue of Lincoln where he's sitting down and looking very dejected. Um, so it's not a heroic statue, and it was uh, built around or installed around 1930. So at the end of this period that you note, um, mm-hmm. and it's in uh, Lincoln Park in, in Jersey City. Um, okay, do you have anything else on statues before we should before we move on to our our next topic? No, no, I, th- I, I think I, I think I'm done. Okay, I think, we, I think we covered. Yeah, we covered the ground. But but then yeah, I feel like you know we could keep on talking about this for a long time because it's, it is just such a strange, uh, resonant topic. But the, but the, the another thing I want to talk to you about was a TEDx talk that you gave in 2019 um, called "How to Be a Tourist," and we'll include the link. And um, I, I encourage people to uh, uh, check it out. And so. You know, so the era of tourism has um, at least paused, and maybe it's it's come to an end. But uh, probably not. But who knows? Um, so, how are you thinking? Can you just talk a little bit about the initial um, argument in in this uh, TED talk you gave, and then how you maybe how you think about it now that we're in coronavirus world? Well, I mean, my talk was about how we have this discourse of over tourism, which is often quite snobbish in the sense of my my travel is necessary it's your travel that's destroying the planet and that's often the subtext there and it's much like many discussions of overpopulation there's always just enough of me far too many of you you know which, which is often the <laughs> not so hidden subtext of these things and when it comes to travel people particularly these days of um, instagram and social media it's very much a an experience that they're wanting to project onto another audience. So it's not necessarily what they're experiencing. It's the image of what they're experiencing that they want to send to someone else. So, you know, taking the selfie in the right place with a beautiful view or whatever. And you see these photos of people. Obviously, we all know that crowds of people with selfie sticks. It's like they're not even experiencing the environment they're visiting. They're only seeing it through their own screen in order to get the right photo or whatever for for Instagram likes later on. And so, you know, I was talking about, you know, the importance of travel and thinking about what you're doing as a traveler and whether maybe it's not necessary to visit to some of the more over-touristed areas, you know. Maybe if you really want to do the right thing, you should just not go to these places if you actually care about them. Um 
you know, because conscious people talk about conscious travel and it's always about how you can travel, but do it more ecologically. It's never about how you can just not, you know, maybe that that's the best thing to do. Although, of course, now we're in a situation where pretty much most of us are just not traveling. And that raises questions, too, because you see places where economies have become entirely dependent on travel and not just on local travel. Um, a lot of cities are really dependent on people flying in from all over the world to maintain their economy. And when that's not happening, you know, you've got cities that are major travel hubs like Singapore currently getting basically no visitors. And that's, you know, hugely disruptive to their economies when you have huge proportion of the population otherwise employed in ways that depend on travel. Right. Um, this is a side note, but did you see the piece in the Times in the last week or so about the um, town in Thailand, I believe, uh, that is a tourist spot because of all the monkeys that live there? And now what's happening to the monkeys now that the tourists aren't there to feed them anymore? I don't think I saw that. Is it that they're not getting enough food because the tourists aren't there? Yes. So I'll, it's a very it's like funny and sad and strange. I'll include the link to it below. But basically... You know, th th this was like a historical, like, um, I think Hindu monastery area. It could, it could be Buddhist. Um, and then it also it always attracted travelers. And then in modern day, the travelers started coming more to see all these monkeys that are very tame and will take like a piece of apple out of your hand. Mm -hmm. And then all the travelers stopped. The monkeys are still around. And now the monkeys are harassing um, everyone, all the shopkeepers and people who live in this area uh, constantly and like causing crazy mischief, like because they're so smart and they just are, you know, it's like a toddler, you know, it's, it's like there's a thousand hungry toddlers who are like running around this, this town. It's, 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 you know, <laughs> unanticipated result of, of the virus. Um, so, so, it, so in the talk, you say, you know, there's the, uh, there's the traveler and this is like a lofty thing. And there's the, the tourist and everyone hates tourists, or at least if you live in a tourist spot, you hate tourists. Um, and, and like, so t t being a tourist, is bad being a traveler is good, but you note that like anywhere you can travel to, someone has been there before to, you know, find it or you know build the infrastructure there or make it easier <laughs> to get there, and um, the uh, so the, the travel and the tourist is there is there a difference? Do you see a difference between them at all, uh, or are they just a, a fancy name for the same thing? I think I think they're the same thing. I think people are kidding themselves when they're oh I'm I'm a traveler, I'm a citizen of the world, this sort of stuff. I think that's I think that's absolutely a load. I think <laughs> I think you're a tourist and you should admit it. I just quickly looked up this monkey story. I think that's very funny. Um I haven't been there. I have been to a monkey jungle in Indonesia, which is similarly they are kind of looked after by the monks, but they are very, very keen on stealing food from tourists. They they will rip a sandwich out of your bag, that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know what they're doing right now with the lack of lack of tourists. Probably the same thing. Probably running around and uh, stealing from everyone in the place. <laughs> right. One of the funny um, the funny details is that uh, there's some cops or somewhere between a cop and an animal control officer in the town, and his weapon is a slingshot. Um, and so they say, you know, he'll you know he'll go to the slingshot and the monkey will run away, but he actually never shoots them. Um, oh, he doesn't really? have any ammo for the slingshot. So once the monkeys figure out that he, they never actually got shot, you know, after a couple times, they're like, they don't care about the slingshot thing anymore. And so he, I guess he needs to figure out some new way to, to scare the monkeys away. Um, but they must have seen someone fire a slingshot 
Maybe, it ha- yeah, maybe originally. No, that it was something to be scared of. That's a good point. Maybe, maybe at first they they were given like little rocks or something to, and then maybe that was decided that was too cruel to monkeys. Um, and yeah, I mean, just yeah, just the idea of control. You know, monkeys are, you know, too like too many monkeys is not a problem that you, you think about very often. But you can't. It seems mean just like euthanize them or something because they they clearly have a higher consciousness than you know, standard vermin or whatever. Um, but it's all get, but getting back to the, um, traveling, you know, what, one thing this, this made me think about was, um, I, and I mentioned this on another episode, I, uh, I'm newly, somewhat new to the world of, of, uh, online dating and app based dating. And so, you know, it's very based around photographs and, but it's also like the theme of travel and like giving your identity through travel Mm. He's very encouraged, and like there's there's you, there'll be little question prompts, and it'll be like, "Give me travel tips for blank," or the my craziest travel story is blank, and it really so it really does seem like you know in modern, you know modern mm-hmm. people who are on the dating market are defining themselves through the kind of travel they're doing, and then also the photos is what really remind me of your talk because if you you know, click through enough photos, you start to notice patterns. And so some of them are, everyone's taking the same vacation to the same place, taking the same photo. Uh, one is the same spot in Machu Picchu. Um, I guess when you finish climbing the mountain or whatever, mm-hmm. you take, you take a photo as you're like exhausted sitting there and, um, the top of Kilimanjaro and, uh, uh, the Louvre and holding, holding your, your fingers up like this over the tip, you know, it, it's like the, the thing with the, um, Leaning Tower of Pisa, like people don't do that anymore. That's lame. But the going to going to, and like pinching the very top of the well, IMP pyramid at the Louvre. Yes, the uh, the IMP uh, pyramid at the Louvre is mm-hmm. the thing you do. And yeah, I, I've seen I've seen that replicated at least a hundred times um, <laughs> on this app. It's strange. So it, it, in some ways, it's just like, well, everyone is kind of the same. You know, everyone has the same. Just what they think a funny photo or a cute photo is. Um, but but yeah, and then it, I've almost you know, there's this Twitter joke that's like like XYZ isn't a personality and it's like, you know, travel isn't a personality. And then all these people who really define themselves through travel and also in the dating apps, they say in their bio, I visited 50 countries. I visited all seven continents. Um, just, you know, like this is obviously very important to them. And now they're stuck, (laughs) stuck here wherever, and they can't go on travel anymore. I guess it it has to like suck for them. If this is like their main source of, uh, you know, like free, what they did in their free time or source of pleasure or something. So in some ways I'm like feeling a little bad for them, but otherwise I'm like, well, maybe you'll like read a book or something now if you can't, if you can't travel to like your 51st country. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, do you remember that website stuff white people like? Yes. That sounds entirely like that. Cause I bet you could say stuff white people like taking a photo at Machu Picchu, taking a photo of themselves, doing yoga on the beach in Costa Rica. You know, it sounds entirely <laughs> Yeah, like that I, 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 I think I think you know. Thankfully, people of all races will you know go to Paris and when they go to the Louvre, take a photo of pinching the, the top of the, of the glass pyramid. Um, it just seems to be universal, or at least women. I don't I don't know if men are also pinching the top of the glass pyramid. Um, but yeah, but then it's, then it's also like you know I've seen I've seen this photo five hundred times. Do I need to go to the Louvre and pinch the top of the, of the glass pyramid? I think I've I've had the experience. I think and you know not a lot of people. Um, have the photo with them and, you know, with the Mona Lisa or something like that, which I guess, you know, it, it was famously like very crowded around looking mm. at the Mona, Mona Lisa um, because of all the travelers slash tourists. And now we know that can't, um, you know, that can't ha- happen in, <laughs> at least currently uh, in this, in our reality. Um, do you want to talk about museums? That could, that seems to lead us into museums. Or is there anything else you want to say about, about travel and how we can't travel right now? 
no, I think I think it will be interesting now to see how the travel industry sort of restores after this, you know, which kinds of travel people go back for and which kinds they don't, particularly if, God forbid, we don't have a vaccine and people are still having to think about, you know, safety and risks of catching the COVID. You know, what kind of travel people will be willing to risk and what kind they won't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it just seems, I don't know. Yeah, it... it in the, in the near future, the the whole travel world seems almost completely cut off, and I don't know, maybe only like the super rich who have like a Gulfstream room or something are, you know, are are, are traveling, um, like for a, any sort of exotic vacation. Um, okay, so uh, museums. So you so you mentioned you have a piece in process on museums and how people understand them. We mentioned this a little bit, um, and and also what how could how can museums like move forward? Uh, you know when so many tourists aren't here and when you can't have crowds of people inside. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, I, I read this a little while ago. So I don't know about you, but I'm on the mailing list of a, quite a few museums and I'm a member of a few museums. And, you know, you're kind of used to getting lots of emails from them saying we need money. I mean, that's you get an email from them every week, give money to one, this, that, and the other. And then when the coronavirus broke out and they start sending more of these emails and they're more desperate and you start realizing they're really, really, really in trouble. I mean, some of uh, particularly smaller museums, museums that aren't, you know, really state sponsored or that ha- don't have large sort of endowments are really, really struggling. And uh, particularly if they're in cities that have been <clears throat> closed off to travel and they're dependent largely on long distance visitors to maintain their, uh, Business. I mean, museums often depend on things like school visits as well, and that's been out of the question while schools have been closed. And so I think it's going to raise questions about how we think about what museums do in order to raise money. There's been museums taking different approaches to put more of their stuff online. Um, you may have noticed this Museums Unlocked thing on social media where a lot of museums are showing elements of their collection, and it's great. I think it's wonderful. People are learning more about what's there, but I don't know how much that's actually going to turn into income for these museums in the yeah. future. I don't know how many people are going to have seen that on Twitter and thought, oh, I've definitely got to go to that museum once once the coronavirus is over. Yeah. And I think it's just going to raise a lot of questions about what museums will survive. I mean, your big ones like, you know, the V&A, the Met, the Louvre, I mean, obviously they're going to survive and no one's no doubt about that. But it's going to be the, the little or more idiosyncratic museums that I think they're will struggle more, particularly if they're in expensive cities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just a couple days ago, the um, Tenement Museum in on the Lower East Side of Manhattan announced that they were like laying off all of their tour guides, um, mm-hmm. so, which was like 75 people, so it seemed like the bulk of their staff. Um, and I'd, I'd gone there for the first time in the fall and really enjoyed it, and the tour guide, I think the tour guides are mostly like, you know, actors who, like this is a kind of a day job, um, and so the guy, the guy was great who, uh, who gave her tour. So that was a bummer. And that, that's also a very, you know, very site specific kind of thing. And also you don't want to be in a tenement during a, uh, um, you know, viral pandemic. So I don't, I don't know what they're, how they're going to possibly do it unless like they end up getting bailed out by the city or the state or, or something. Um, so yeah, it's depressing. Um, thinking about they that. They were actually one of the ones I was writing about, uh, the tenement oh, really? museum. Because, you know, you've got other museums like art museums that oftentimes, I mean, ideally they wouldn't, but when they get really pressed, they might be able to sell that piece of art 
to tie them over for a few months. Whereas something like the Tenement Museum where the artifact is the building, they don't have stuff they can just, you know, take down to Sotheby's. Right. Yeah, the, the artifacts are like, you know, a, some scissors that were found yeah. in, in between the floorboards from 1900. Um, so do you, I mean, do you, uh, do you see a, a, any sort of model besides bailout that could help these cultural institutions? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, I was thinking of something there was um, one of the theatres in London did um, a production recently are, are doing multiple productions and I'm the name the name they've given it is slipped my mind. But basically people were buying tickets as they would to a normal theatre production to watch a stream of a play that was performed in the theatre with no audience. And I'm wondering whether museums might be able to do something like that, where people pay for a virtual private tour. I mean, that's something they could do in this environment and probably make some money from. Yeah. But I don't know what else in the long term would be a viable strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a, I mean, it, it is, um, it does seem like a thing where you, or being there in person uh, is key to the experience. Um like like a play, you know, we're used to watching things on TV, so that's somewhat the same. I, I saw a production of um, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which was uh, off Broadway play that came out last year. They did, they did like a one off, and they kind of redid it for Zoom, and mm-hmm. um, everyone seemingly was, was just in their you know in a room in their apartment. But it, it worked really well, and I had like I hadn't seen the play before, and now I want to see the stage version to see how it was different and see the actors. Um, in real life, if that ever is possible again. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, you know, probably like there, like there was this, uh, you know, Google did something with museums where they took the kind of Google street view machine and, you know, so you can kind of walk through a museum virtually, but like, I guess like, it's cool, but it's like, who is, you know, <laughs> who's a, like, in the same way, like, Oh, I want to go to the museum today. You'd be like, "Oh, I'll just I'll just look at the Google thing today." Like it, it just isn't the same. So yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's 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 bad. I don't know. Maybe to have the true museum experience, they can also you know, door dash you some really overpriced coffee and a piece of cake or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, and um, you know, pump in some like the sounds of like annoying people talking <laughs> behind you as you're trying to contemplate the great art and stuff like that. Um, mm. Okay, so we'll look forward to that piece coming out sometime soon. Um, and so I will ask the question that I teased at the very beginning about about Twitter and you, which is your Twitter avatar, which is very mysterious to me. And I, in my head, it always just kind of like makes me think of a rabbit. But can you describe what it looks like and what it actually is? Well, it is me uh, with what look like big ears, and they are ears. They are, it's a resin model of bilby ears, and a bilby is a little marsupial about the size of a rabbit that lives in Australia, and it was at a zoo, and they have these ears. So it's as if as if a bilby was human-sized, this is how big their ears would be, and oh, you okay. can take your picture with them. And so it's, it's less mysterious. I've had some people ask me, they thought they were lobster claws. That was actually, um, yeah. I, I mean, that's what they kind of look like in a way, but they also look like rabbit ears. But, um, or, but they also kind of look like a fossil or something. Yeah. It's yeah. Okay. Well, mystery solved. And, uh, okay. So, uh, so what is your, what is your uh, Twitter handle? If people want to see you and with the ears I, or follow you or whatever. I am at Katrina Gulliver. 
and I'm sure you can put a link to that underneath. Sure. Yeah, your your Twitter handle will be underneath this. Uh, my Twitter handle is racw. Um, anything else before we <laughs> actually wrap it up? No, I, th- I think we're wrapping it up. I, I, I think you should post the pictures that you're using for your online dating profile. Maybe the picture of you doing yoga in Machu Picchu or whatever. <laughs> um, well, I'll consider it. Um, you know, I, so I am not a global traveler. And so um, most of my, the, the most exotic location that one of my photos is from is a used bookstore in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. But but otherwise, it's not super exciting. Um and I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I like. Do people want? I don't know. Do people like? Like, is it more appealing? Is it less appealing? Especially now, like, what has changed? That's. I guess that's a different conversation. If you know, if if the person's, if they're all their photos are of them in exotic places, and we're in our current reality, it's kind of like, you know, that's the, that's all you got. Like, okay, I guess I guess you don't have not a, not a huge conversationalist or something, you know, <laughs> right now. So I don't know. Uh, okay, so well, what's yeah. the alternative is is the coronavirus version. Here's a photo of me at a Zoom meeting in my living room. Here's a photo of me on a Zoom meeting in my yard. Here's a photo <laughs> of me in a Zoom meeting from my bedroom. Well, there <laughs> one, you know, the one kind of strategy that people do is they'll have like almost like a like a high and a low. So they'll like someone, you know, at a it looks like a you know gala premiere or something all dressed up and then the other one is like just um like hanging out at home and so like the corona selfie is one and so you're looking kind of disheveled but like you know also not not that disheveled like still still pretty good and and uh so, so you know, i guess this this is what i'll look like on a zoom if we do a zoom chat or something like that um so yeah who knows uh, i guess uh, yeah uh, this will i guess continue to develop um <laughs> So, okay, I think that's that's all I have. Okay, thanks for coming on, Katrina. Um, and all, all the stuff that we mentioned uh, will be linked on the blogging site below. Um, and so uh, thank you for taking the time, and thank you to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.